0: Friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. I'm Mark Anthony, and this is Demolition News Radio, episode 118. In this episode, brought to book. This podcast is sponsored by WillowHire.com, the UK's leader in dust suppression equipment. Kick the dust into touch with our new, bigger, and better all in one dust suppression units for hire. Call Willow on 01582 840045. Late last week, I received an email from a lady who was trying to buy one of my books. In itself, that's not unusual. Through the Demolition News Store and through Amazon, we have a number of books for sale, ranging from children's books like My Dad Does Demolition, through non-fiction adult books like Renaissance, Why JCB is the Apple of the Digger World, to our one fiction book, Demolition 2051. But there were two things that set aside this email from the norm. The first was the fact that it related to a book that we produced back in 2016 and which has remained in deep storage, unsold and unloved since the end of that year when demand for the book just ran out. The second was the fact that the person requesting the now out-of-print book works with a major crime unit at Thames Valley Police. And while the book itself commits a multitude of crimes against grammar and probably a good few against the laws of spelling too, it came as something of a surprise to learn that it appeared on the radar of the major crime unit. At this point, I should probably tell you what book they wanted and why, and just as importantly, how the book came to exist in the first place. Demolition News Radio, the independent voice of the global demolition industry. Primarily because my wife has a vice-like grip on the TV remote control, and partly because, aside from football, anything narrated by Sir David Attenborough and Shark Week I can never find anything to watch on TV and so I tend to listen to a lot of podcasts and I watch a lot of YouTube videos. Back at the end of 2015 I found myself watching a lot of videos of a guy called Henry Rollins formerly of the punk band Black Flag and more recently the Rollins band. More recently still Rollins has carved himself a career as a spoken word artist and an author, self-publishing a bunch of books comprising the many articles and essays he's written over the years for titles including Rolling Stone and the New York Times. It was this self-publishing essay compilation books that really grabbed my attention. Although they're mostly contained within the realms of DemolitionNews.com and the Demolition magazine, I am constantly writing, constantly producing content. And while a good deal of it is news-based and time-reliant, some of it, mainly the comments, articles and leaders, is as relevant today as it was the day it spewed from my brain. I decided that I was going to produce a compilation book. I was going to self-publish it. I was going to be the UK's answer to Henry Rollins only less famous, with fewer tattoos and a lot less scary. Then, like so many other grand plans and schemes that I cook up while my brain is in neutral, I took the idea and parked it way back in the darkest recess of my brain quite possibly to never see the light of day again. But something happened on the 23rd of February 2016 that would bring that idea back to the forefront of my mind. And that something was the Didcot disaster. Demolition News Radio is the podcast of DemolitionNews.com and The Demolition Magazine. I've written about and spoken about my reaction to the disaster countless times over the two and a bit years since, so I won't go over that ground again. What I will say is that I, together with the rest of the industry, heard about the disaster on the Tuesday it happened. Through my connections with Sky News and the BBC, I spent the whole of the following day conducting TV, radio and local newspaper interviews at the power station itself. By Thursday, I was determined to do something. I didn't know what, but it was clear that this single incident, the extent of which was not yet known, was going to have a major and lasting impact upon this industry. And then it hit me. The book. I could produce the book, sell it, and send the profits from it to the families of the men killed in the incident. I made a few phone calls to ensure that I wasn't going to be standing on any industry toes by responding to the tragedy with a fundraising book. Those calls were met with universal support and enthusiasm. And so I set about the mind-numbing task of compiling something like three years' worth of articles and essays. I had to read each of them to ensure that they were still relevant and that the passage of time had not rendered them obsolete. I had to get each of them proofread to hopefully reduce the number of mistakes contained within. I got my youngest son, Fred, to start work on an appropriate design and layout. And I set my mind to coming up with a suitable title. The title we eventually settled upon was a site for sore eyes. A play on words with the word site, spelled S-I-T-E, like a demolition site. At the time, I thought I was being awfully clever. Looking back, it just feels like a poorly executed pun. Be sure to check out Demolition TV on YouTube, the only YouTube show dedicated to demolition. Just a week after the Didcot disaster occurred, we started to take pre-orders for the book. A week after that, batches of the books started to land on desks and in mailboxes across the world. The response was unbelievable. We received two large orders from a pair of companies that compete head-to-head with the contractor involved in the Didcot disaster. We received a bulk order from the Institute of Demolition Engineers, another from the European Demolition Association, and yet another from the National Demolition Association in the US. We received individual orders from Italy, France, Spain, Germany, Australia, New Zealand and Brazil. I make it sound like I'd surpassed my Henry Rollins ambitions to become the new J.K. Rowling the new Stephen King. The truth is that the book sold in the low thousands. They achieved the aim of raising some money for the families of those killed in the accident, but it was a mere drop in the ocean. And while the book enjoyed a moment in the spotlight, that light soon faded. There were a few days in the immediate aftermath of the accident in which we sold a 100 books or more. A few weeks later, that number had dwindled to maybe 10 a week. A month after that, and the boxes of books we pre-ordered to drive down the print cost just started to collect dust and cobwebs. Long before the end of the year, those boxes were moved into a cupboard. And last year, those boxes were moved into a local storage unit where they sit unopened to this day. To subscribe to The Demolition Magazine, just head over to demolitionnewsstore.com All of which brings me back to the actual point of this episode and to just one of the reasons I was so surprised to receive a request for this book so long after we'd declared them effectively out of print. So I sent a message to the person at the Major Crime Unit explaining that the book was not readily available any longer and asking why they were interested in a book that, in my mind at least, had run its course. It turns out this Major Crime Unit is working in conjunction with the Health and Safety Executive on the ongoing investigation into the Didcot disaster itself. Apparently, the existence of the book had come up in conversation several times during the investigation, and they wanted a copy to be thorough to ensure that there was nothing within the book that might actually aid their inquiry. Sadly, there isn't. I've learned a lot more about the Didcot disaster since the day we published the book, and I shall probably continue to do so. So while I was happy to rescue the long forgotten book from the storage unit and to send the police a copy, I don't think they'll learn a great deal from it. However, It did give me an opportunity to have a quick flick through the book for the first time in about two years. As is the nature of these things, my eyes were drawn immediately to things I could and should have written better. I found a few mistakes that both myself and the proofreader missed in the countless read-throughs the book went through prior to publication. But it also gave me an opportunity to revisit the final chapter of the book, something I wrote within hours of the accident itself, something I wrote when the outcome was still unknown and while the emotion was still both fresh fresh and raw. This is what I wrote. I'm a one trick pony. My only discernible talent is the ability to spout streams of words in a roughly grammatical order, 10 hours a day, six days a week. Thankfully, this unexceptional talent earns me a living. Equally thankfully, it's never let me down until now. In the immediate aftermath of the tragic events that did a power station earlier this week, I simply don't have the words. Not in a trite, Hollywood, I don't know what to say way, but in a, my vocabulary is not sufficiently broad nor deep enough to convey all that needs to be conveyed way. I don't have the words to offer solace to the families of the men injured and killed. And I don't have the words to provide them with comfort as an increasingly frustrating search and rescue operation continues. I don't have the words to express my admiration for the demolition workers at the power station that bravely and selflessly tried to help their fallen friends and colleagues. I don't have the words to express my gratitude to the search and rescue teams, the ambulance service, local hospital and police force that rallied to the aid of the injured demolition workers. I don't have the words to express my gratitude to the volunteers that kept rescuers and demolition workers fed and hydrated around the clock while the search was ongoing. I don't have the words to express my dismay that rescue teams must rely upon the good auspices of local people for food and water while they are attempting to save lives. I don't have the words to portray the incredible outpouring of kinship and solidarity among demolition companies here and across the world that have inundated demolition news offices with emails, text messages and phone calls of condolence. I don't have the words to express my pride at the demolition workers demolition company owners, equipment manufacturers and other allied people that have set aside traditional rivalries and allegiances and taken to social media in support of Coleman and Company and of demolition in general. I don't have the words to describe the sheer magnitude of the carnage that greeted rescue workers, the mountains of twisted steel against which orange suited rescue teams look like so many ants faced with an insurmountable task. I don't have the words to describe my anger and frustration at media attempts to appoint blame while the search and rescue teams were still hard at work, to point fingers while demolition workers remained trapped. I don't have the words to describe my feelings towards those people that have crawled out from under a stone to offer their uneducated, this was an accident waiting to happen, pronouncements. I don't have the words to describe my feelings towards that ill-spirited few non-industry people that were suddenly imbued with structural engineering experience, and demolition expertise and who sought their 15 minutes of fame with their baseless I could have predicted this nightmare scenario comments. The final words of that chapter and the final words in the book are I am quite literary out of words. I wrote that more than 830 days ago. It turns out I still am. Thanks for listening. Demolition News Radio. Dedicated to demolition.